Welcome to Know Your Bible, a program presented by the Churches of Christ and devoted to helping you understand God's Word. The Bible is a book inspired by God that contains answers to your questions. The Bible reveals Jesus and explains His sacrifice, contains God's plan for the family, and timeless principles of parenting. Also has the truth about life and death. The Bible contains great financial advice and also answers questions of morality. Join us as we look for answers to your questions and help you know your Bible. Good morning. Welcome to Know Your Bible. We're glad you've come back today as we try to answer some more of your questions. That's what we do each week on this program is study the Bible with you by answering your questions about the Bible. If you're a first-time viewer, uh, you'll find that we answer all kinds of questions. Uh, watch for a little while to get how the program works, but then if you've got a question, uh, we'd be happy to take it. If there's a phone number and a website on the screen, you can use those anytime to get in touch with us and uh, just tell us what you're interested in. Uh, sometimes it's about the Bible, a specific verse or topic or doctrine, and a lot of times it's about life and your family or sometimes it's something in the news. In fact, I noticed, uh, Toby, your first question is a news-related yep. one, and let me introduce Toby Levering. He's back. Good morning, Toby. Hi, Steve. Glad you're here and ready to go, and uh, we'll get to that news question in just a moment, but <coughs> we always start with one for our viewing audience. And today's question is about uh, Jesus' first miracle. Somebody asked him to do his first miracle. He didn't do it uh, because he wanted to particularly, but somebody asked him to. And we'll uh, give you the answer to that at the end of the program, see if you and your family know that one. All right, let's turn to the news and let Toby <laughs> explain part of it. <laughs> yeah, this is the question. How do you feel about the Kentucky clerk being jailed over her moral decisions. Uh, this question is referring to Kim Davis, who is the county clerk in, I think it's Rowan County, uh, Kentucky. And uh, part of her job, one of the main parts of her job is issuing marriage licenses. Well, the recent Supreme Court decision, uh, that put her at odds. Uh, on the one hand, she had a job to do of uh, issuing marriage licenses and uh, uh, many in the uh, with a, an agenda and, and something to prove, uh, decided that they wanted to test the limits of the law. And so uh, there were some activists that came and, and they were homosexuals and they uh, wanted a marriage license. Um, the, where the problem came is that she is a, I, I presume from what I understand, a Bible-believing, God-fearing woman, and uh, she just couldn't in good conscience do that. Well, that became a problem. Uh, I, on a personal moral level, agree with her decision, of course. I don't think you would expect me to say something different. And I do commend her for her courage. Uh, I think convictions are good. I think people of faith, especially as we encourage you on this program to study your Bible and know your Bible, it's not just about reading them, it's about believing them. It's about taking those convictions into your heart. Uh, Hebrews 11:6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And what that means is it, it really becomes a part of our everyday life. And so it doesn't surprise me uh, that this came. It does, I am a little surprised that it has come so quickly. Um, if you think, Steve, just how uh, quickly our country and the culture has, has turned on this issue, uh, it is going to be a problem for people of faith and for especially for people of conviction. Now, I think there have always been people of faith who've said, well, we'll just go along to get along and, 
and try to you know not cause too many uh, make too many waves and and not rock the boat too much but at some point if you have some convictions you're gonna have to stand up for those convictions so uh, I think she did the right thing uh, she may lose her job eventually have to do something different uh, that's okay I, I appreciate and I always uh, uh, try to even point out to my children uh, the good examples when someone stands up for what is right, um, even if it costs them something or even if they stand alone. It is a little bit surreal, like I said, but it isn't surprising. The Bible tells us that that time's going to come, and I think we're very much approaching that time. Uh, Romans 13 says <clears throat> Christians have to, uh, at, the, at every level, seek to live peaceably under the laws in which they live. And so I think it's our job as Christians to, to try to um, uh, obey the laws and try to uh, honor those who are in authority. Uh, the exception to that becomes when they dishonor the one in total authority. And so when human beings or human governments create laws and rules that are directly opposed to what God has said and what God has commanded, uh, then we're going to have a problem. So uh, when those laws defies, defy God, then Christians of integrity must stand up for what the Lord says. Uh, in Acts 5, verses 28 and 29, Peter and John said to the people who told them, we gave you strict orders not to be teaching and preaching. And they simply said, we must obey God rather than man. And I think that's a good uh, understanding of Christian authority. Let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 12 and following. In fact, everyone, the Apostle Paul writes, who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of, because uh, you know those from whom you learned it. So I think we're going to have more of it. I think it's not uncommon, but I certainly uh, appreciate her convictions and her courage. Right, good answer. Uh, viewers asking why God wants to do something, and like we say often, <coughs> it's always risky to want to know why why God does something some way. But uh, this viewer says, John 5.28 says our bodies will rise from the grave for judgment. Well, why do we need our bodies when our spirit is already in heaven? Well, all right. Uh, that's ultimately saying why does God want to do it that way? Why is He going to raise our bodies and reunite them with our spirits? And I believe that's correct. I think that's what's going to happen at Judgment Day. Uh, all those who are in their grave will arise, the righteous and the wicked. Uh, all of the spirits of those who have died will be reunited with their resurrection body and all of that. Uh, can't tell you why God wants it that way. Uh, you could reason that, you know, a spirit's good enough. Uh, we could get by with just our spirit and don't need a physical body here. Uh, Paul explains how it's going to happen and he explains quite a bit about it. And I think that's good for us to read. So we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 15 in just a moment, but let me preface it with the context. In 1 Corinthians 15, the people in Corinth, uh, people were dying and they wondered, Jesus hadn't come back. What about these folks that had died? And Paul explained to them that their body will be raised. And then another question they had was, well if, well, if their bodies are raised, what are the bodies going to be like? And here's Paul's answer in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. 
Uh, he says, someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? And Paul says, well, that's a foolish question. <laughs> it, I mean, he says it right out. That's foolish because when you plant something, something different comes up. When you plant a seed, uh, what comes out of the ground is not anything like the seed. So he uses that illustration and then he says, so it will be, and this is down in verse 42, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. Um, the body that is sown is perishable. It's raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. So that's all we know about it. That's all he tells us is it's going to be a whole lot better, our spiritual body, than our physical body. Now, <clears throat> why God chose to do that and why we need, if he wants to use that term, bodies in heaven, uh, one idea I have, and I don't know if it's God's purpose, but it seems to me that gives us something to look forward to. We're so, we're physical, we're on this earth, and when we come to the end of our life, our body begins to fail. It gets frail and uh, sick and can't do the things we used to do. And this promise, this uh, certainty that in heaven we'll have spiritual bodies. We'll have strong bodies. We'll have beautiful bodies again. Uh, it gets frustrating not being able to do the things we used to do. And uh, young folks don't know that, but <laughs> we older folks know that. And when it gets to the time of death, it's, it's really uh, a thing where you really can't do the things you used to do. And this vision, this promise, this concept that, oh, I will my body's going to be restored, I think is a great comfort to us and a great thing to look forward to. Not just for those who are dying, but for their family. Uh, many of you have been watching long enough. You remember my father, Lewis, uh, toward the end of his life, he passed away when he was 90. He was very frail. He had broken a hip and had a number of other things wrong. He couldn't do the things he used to do. And he didn't like that a bit. He, he was ready to get out of here. Uh, he was ready to go on home and not have to put up with these physical frailties. Well, that was a comfort for him to know that he would be getting his spiritual body someday. But it was also a comfort to us that we're left behind uh, because it's, it wasn't pleasant to watch him not be able to do the things he used to do. Uh, not full of strength and vigor like he was when he was a young man. And uh, that, that was a comfort to us. So maybe that's what God had in mind with uh, coming up with spiritual bodies. But whatever reason he came up with it for, it, it's going to be wonderful. So can't tell you why, but it's going to be a good thing. Those why God questions are always uh, got to be careful. No, we, we, <laughs> don't do, we don't very. Our record on answering those is not very good. Next question: A uh, viewer wants to know where a passage is. Where does Jesus say, "I have come to seek and save the lost"? Uh, to answer your question directly, it is found in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. The context of that is uh, the story of uh, Jesus calling a tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus. The little children will recognize the story. Uh, uh, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in that sycamore tree, and he waited for the Lord to see. Now, the interesting part about the, 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 where the verse is, is why Jesus called Zacchaeus. In Luke chapter 19, 
uh, verse 7, this is not on the screen, but when you look at the verse, it says, All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. And so Jesus simply says, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. And then we're going to look at verse 10, which is on the screen. Uh, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. It's a great story and a great reminder that you are never too far gone uh, beyond to, to outlast the love of Jesus and to go beyond his reach. Anyone. <coughs> Uh, <clears throat> sinner great or sinner small uh, falls uh, within the love and the desire of Jesus for that man to be saved. That's what Jesus came to do. And if you're uh, maybe watching this program and you've thought, man, I, you know, I, people know their Bibles and I just don't. And I've done so many horrible things. Uh, you need to read the story of Zacchaeus. It is a wonderful reminder uh, that Jesus came to seek and save even you. Uh, he, he has a desire for all, all the lost to be saved and a r- reminder for those who are saved, not just to huddle with the saved, but to remind uh, them to be out seeking and saving the lost as well. That's <coughs> the heart of Jesus. So a good reminder, and that's where the verse is found. All righty, thank you. Take just a moment and talk about a good way to study the Bible. We like answering questions, and we hope you learn a few things about the Bible each week. Uh, but the Bible's so full of uh, rich teaching and life direction and great promises that give us comfort. And it's just full of so much of that that we don't have anywhere near the time to, to talk about it. So we advocate studying the Bible at home. And we've got some free Bible study materials uh, that we're happy to send to you. They'll come in the mail and uh, there are a number of different courses. But the first one is a very basic one, just a good introduction to the Bible. Got eight, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> eight different lessons in it, and get you grounded in what the Bible's about. The first two lessons are about Old and New Testament, so you learn what those are about. It's surprising how many of our viewers uh, don't know the difference between the Old and the New, and why reading in one is a little different than reading in another. And uh, this course will explain that to you. So, phone number, website at the bottom of the screen. Use either one. Get in touch with us say, I'd like that free course, and we'll get one in the mail for you very quickly, and you can study as much Bible or uh, go as slow as you want, but uh, you can study a lot of Bible with Know Your Bible study materials. So let us know you want it, and we'll get it started for you. Okay, I got a question about the cloth and the wineskins. What does the parable about old and new cloth (coughs) and old and new wineskins mean? Well, is a little strange, especially if you don't know the, some of the customs of the day. Uh, let's just go ahead and read the little passage. It's from Mark chapter 2, and I've got the wrong slide here. It says Mark 8. It's actually Mark 2. We had the right scripture there. We just had the wrong uh, chapter number on it. So change that uh, at home. It's Mark chapter 2. But here's the passage. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, 
making the tear worse. Well, let's work on that one a while. Uh, today, most people would, well, we don't fix things anymore. We don't patch things, so not many people know this. Uh, but if you take an old garment that's been washed and washed and shrunk and got comfortable, and it gets a tear in it, and you put a new piece of cloth on it and sew it on, well, the next time you wash it, the new piece will shrink, and it'll look bad. It won't look like it goes together. Uh, so that's what he was referring to. Now, the wineskins are a little different. <clears throat> wineskins, once they were used to hold wine, they were uh, animal leather or uh, something like that, and they were sewn together, and then you put wine in them. Well, once they got old, they got stiff, and they wouldn't expand. They weren't flexible. And the trouble is, new wine, as it ferments, it expands a little bit. It gets the gases in there and all that. So if you took an old, stiff wineskin, put new wine in it, the thing would blow up. It wouldn't hold it. So you take a new wineskin, one that's flexible and uh, fresh. You put new wine in that, and they expand together. So that's the customs. And the Pharisees were asking about fasting and why Jesus' disciples didn't fast. And this is what he told them. He told them a story about cloth and wineskins. His answer was, <clears throat> they don't go together. The fasting doesn't fit with what we're doing. He said, the bridegroom is here. Uh, the apostles don't have any, about anything to fast about. Well, there's no sadness in this or, and no reason to fast. They're with me. They're learning from me. They're, they're with God is what he was saying. Uh, so it's not a time to fast. It just doesn't fit together. It doesn't fit together like a new piece of cloth doesn't fit on an old garment. So that's what he was saying is their specific question didn't go together. The apostles learning from Jesus, being with him, traveling with them, it would have been silly for them to stop and fast. Uh, they're having a good time. They're learning. They're, this is a great times when the, the master is on earth. So let's get on with it and not take time to fast. <laughs> so that's what that <clears throat> story was about. Okay. Uh, a viewer asked the question, <clears throat> why did Jesus say on the cross, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thought God wouldn't forsake anyone. Uh, the answer to your question is the reason he doesn't forsake anyone is uh, because he was he because he forsook his son. Uh, it was that the forsaking his own son who was perfect, who lived a perfect life, uh, and as such was able to be a perfect payment for our sin. So yes, uh, God will not forsake anyone. But the only way he can do that is through the blood uh, of Christ uh, that was shed on the cross. <clears throat> we find this account in Matthew 27 and Mark 15 where he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is on when he's hanging from the cross yelling out these words. And these seem especially strange to us because he was Jesus. You know, we understand as we look at the relationship between Jesus the Son and God the Father that they were one that everything they did was uh, in sync, it was is harmonious and working together. And yet at the cross, uh, the place of cruel, cruel torture, uh, beyond the torture, the harshness of the cross and the darkness of that day uh, was far beyond the physical suffering of Jesus. It was the separation for once in all eternity of the Father from the Son. 
And for those who believe that the cross was sort of an accident, well, I didn't really expect it, and it kind of became a uh, the church became a plan B. No, the cross was absolutely prophesied in the Old Testament. Uh, uh, Jesus was fulfilling Psalm chapter 22, verse 1. You read Psalm chapter 22, and it is basically a, a prediction of what was going to happen at Calvary. And the very first verse of that is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, he is repeating the prophecy of Isaiah, the suffering servant, in Isaiah 53, uh, verses 4 and 5, where the, pro uh, the prophet says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. <clears throat> the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. So uh, this was a very dreadful place when Jesus prayed in the garden, Father, let this cup pass from me. The cup was a picture of God's wrath in the Old Testament. And he understood that what he was about to do when he got on that cross was to endure the absolute, total, unrelenting wrath of God stored up against us because of our sin. And it wasn't sin that he committed, it was sin that we committed. So. Yes, he had to forsake him. There was no other way. Uh, God can't be just unless he punishes <clears throat> sin. And the beauty of the cross, he was able to punish one who was sinless so that he could redeem the sinful. <clears throat> Let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 together, where Paul explains it this, this way. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If Jesus Christ became our sin, then indeed he had to forsake him. Um, but he rose from that uh, grave, and because of that resurrection and that <clears throat> pure death, uh, we have hope in Christ. So, yes, he had to forsake him. It was the only way. All righty. Uh, same topic, just at <clears throat> the other extreme of salvation is at the end of uh, our life, perhaps. Uh, Hebrews 6 says it uh, talks about falling away and losing our salvation. Now, what does it take to lose our salvation? Well, we get a lot of questions about the once saved, always saved concept and that doctrine, and uh, we do not believe in that uh, in the way that it's stated. But it, often it's just a matter of semantics. I think when we discuss this topic, we need to be very careful about that. Our viewer asks, what does it take to lose our salvation? Now, uh, I think there are plenty of reassurances that we can't lose it in the sense of accidentally losing it, in the sense of walking down the street and somebody taking it away from us. Uh, we've got plenty of reassurances about that. In fact, let's read one of the best ones. It's in Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39. Paul said, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sounds pretty much like we can't lose it, doesn't it? Uh, Paul's very sure that if we have our salvation and Christ loves us, that we're not going to lose it. We're not going to misplace it. It's not going to be stolen, any of that. If you change the word, however, to forfeit, what does it take to forfeit our salvation? Then I think I can explain that. In fact, that verse in Hebrews that our viewer was talking about is one of the clearest places that proves that a Christian can 
fall away. He can fall from grace. He can forfeit his salvation. Because the verse says, uh, someone who was once enlightened, someone who had tasted the heavenly gift, someone who had shared in the Holy Spirit, who had tasted the goodness of the Word of God, if they fall away, okay, so they can fall away. Satan is always working to get us to forsake Christ. We all know somebody, not many Christians do it, but we know somebody that the world has attracted. The world has pulled back into the world and they forsake Christ. They fall away from trusting in His grace. And in the end of that passage, Hebrews 6, 6, I think this is the best answer when our viewers said, what does it take to lose our salvation? Here's what Paul says, I mean the writer of Hebrews says was really happening when they do that. He said, because they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. People that once were Christians that decide, no, I'm going back into the world. He says what they're doing is they're crucifying Jesus all over again. They're submitting Him to public disgrace. And it's, he says, impossible, very, very, very hard to get them back to the Lord. So we can forfeit it. We have to walk away. We choose to forsake Christ. Let me take just a moment here as we're about to run out of time. Let me invite you to visit a Church of Christ near you. Uh, the Churches of Christ across our viewing area keep us on the air. And uh, One that we like to mention occasionally is up in Brookings, South Dakota. Uh, a great bunch of folks up there in Brookings. Uh, it's kind of a, a mission field area. And Brother Jim Mettenbrink is the minister there. Great guy. Uh, if you're looking for a church home and you're in that area, I know you'd be warmly welcomed at uh, the Church of Christ here. And uh, if you know somebody that attends that church, tell them you watch Know Your Bible and you appreciate them providing it for you. Uh, we're glad that they help us stay on the air and we uh, look forward to uh, visiting them pretty soon. I think we've got a trip scheduled to go up there perhaps. So uh, stop in and say hi to the folks in Brookings. In any place you live in the market area, you can find a Church of Christ near you. All right, Toby, we're just about running out of time. Yep. Can you handle sure. one here? Uh, viewer wants kind of a parenting question. How can I encourage my 15-year-old to read her Bible? Uh, well, <clears throat> I'm going to say just like I would say anything you're trying to train your 15-year-old to do. There's probably two basic ways. One is you can command her and force her to do so. That might work maybe, depending on the personality, but the other probably most uh, effective way is to set the best example yourself. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, Paul, the Apostle Paul, mind you, said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. You can tell them what to do, but the best thing uh, to encourage daily Bible reading is to show them what to do, and not just to show them doing it, but to show her or he, uh, him, the results of reading your Bible. Uh, think of it this way. Uh, if you lost, uh, I don't know, 50 pounds, boy, somebody might say, well, how did you do it? Why do they say that? Because they want the results that they see. So when they see the fruit of the Word of God in your life and the fruit of the Spirit in your life, uh, they're going to start wanting some of that themselves. So set the right example in all that you do. Let's look very quickly at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. These commands that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, uh, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. 
Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So impress them and set the right example. Best way I can think of to encourage your 15 year old to get into <laughs> her or his Bible. Alrighty. Uh, best advice probably be start a lot earlier than 15. Yeah. 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 But True. sometimes people just have to start where they are. <laughs> I know. <you> know? <laughs> I know. All right. We're about out of time. So let's get our trivia question answered. Uh, who asked Jesus to do his first miracle? Well, it was somebody that had quite a bit of influence. It was his mother, Mary. And he told Mary, no, it wasn't time to do that yet, but she insisted and Jesus did it for her. So he was a good son. We're glad, glad you were with us today. We're out of time now, but we'll be back answering some more questions in a week. Till then, you have a great week. Know Your Bible has been presented by the Churches of Christ in your area. Churches of Christ are non-denominational and each congregation is an independent group of Christians seeking to do God's will. Our goal is simple New Testament Christianity. We follow the Bible as our only guide. Contact us with any questions and we encourage you to visit a Church of Christ near you.